remember a theology professor saying something like, well, eat and drink without discerning the body. Well, he's just talked about, you know, people pigging out at the Eucharist. And what he really means is not discerning the body of Christ around you who's lining mm-hmm. up to mm-hmm. receive, like you're, what you're guilty of is being rude to the people around you. And I knew it couldn't be that. I knew that what's going on here is a lot more than just, you know, taking too much at the buffet with people in line behind you. I knew it had to be more than that, but I didn't have any context for understanding what it meant to profane the body and blood of Christ. Well, hello and welcome to another prepossessing episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. Me being Matt Swaim, him being Ken Hensley, and we we are on the journey with you. Ken, how are you? I'm doing good. Good to see you again, Matt. Ready to roll. Like, I'm ready to roll also. And if you want to go back and find out some of the things that we've done in previous episodes, like if you want to catch up on this whole concept of what we're talking about with the Eucharist and go back and see the other one, go to uh, chnetwork.org. You can find not only that episode, but also lots of resources for people with questions about the Catholic faith, uh, journey home episodes, and a lot more. And Ken, yes. today I'm excited. We get to continue on our topic about the Eucharist. And today we get to dig into John Henry Newman. So well, that's a little extra bit. Yeah, a little bit at the beginning. In fact, let me just, uh, is it all right with you if I launch immediately into to a friendly um, rant of sorts? I would say launch away, my friend. Okay. Because this thing with history is just so crucial. And I want to put it like this. If I had wanted to remain an evangelical Protestant, I should never have read the first three centuries of Christian writings, the early church fathers. I should certainly never have read the brilliant Anglican convert from the 19th century, John Henry Newman. It was Newman who in his essay on the development of Christian doctrine laid down for me really the challenge of early church history, something I had thought very little about. To be deep in history, Newman wrote, is to cease to be Protestant. Quite a challenge. Newman said that it was easy to show that the early church was not Protestant. Newman went so far as to assert that if the system of doctrine that I held as an evangelical Protestant If that system of doctrine and belief had ever existed, that is, you know, instantiated in any kind of an actual church movement in the early centuries of Christian history, he said, these are his words, it has been clean swept away as if by a deluge, suddenly, silently, and without memorial. In other words, he's saying there is simply no evidence of any Christian group in the early centuries of the church, in fact, not until the time of the Reformation, actually holding the doctrinal system that I held and thought was just quite obvious as a modern evangelical. Uh, Quoting again from Newman, History is not a creed or a catechism. It gives lessons rather than rules. Still, no one can mistake its general teaching in this matter, whether he accept it or stumble at it. Bold outlines, broad masses of color arise from the records of the past. They may be dim, they may be incomplete, but they are definite. And this one thing at least is certain, the Christianity of history is not Protestantism. 
if ever there was a safe truth, it is this. It, yeah, I I read similar things in uh, not just uh, Newman, but in Chesterton, and uh, then went back and read some of the Church Fathers for myself. And what's uh, what was shocking to me is that my impression had been that it was the opposite case of what Newman is indicating here. My impression had been that um, the early church didn't look anything like the religion of today. The early church just looked like a whole bunch of people meeting in rooms, um, eating some sandwiches and going out and helping the poor, singing some songs, praying together, you know, sharing their possessions. And you got that in the book of Acts, but you got a whole bunch of other stuff as you're about to indicate. Yeah, and also, sure, if you want to look at the first week, the first month, of what would the church be? What could it be except Christians gathering in homes and, and whatnot, okay? But still, things change very quickly and develop very, very quickly. Okay, now, um, you know, in this rant, what this rant is about is, is simply that, that, that this exposure to the early church fathers is something very, very powerful, and it's something that moved me very powerfully into a, a new mindset. Okay, but on to the Eucharist. I certainly found what Newman is saying here to be the case when it comes to the early church's understanding of the Eucharist. That is, you can look at what the early church fathers say, and you can say, oh, well, one of them says this, one of them says that. There are slight nuance and differences and whatnot. But as Newman says, broad masses of color definitely arise from the past. And it's clear what is being taught in general. In fact, a single quotation from St. Justin Martyr, writing around 150 AD, I would say sums up pretty well what you and I saw last week. What seems to have been the universal teaching of the Church in both the East and the West for really the first 1,500 years of Christian history. This is what Justin Martyr said. For not as common bread or common drink do we receive these, but since Jesus Christ our Savior was made incarnate by the Word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food that has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by Him and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nourished, is both the flesh and the blood of that incarnated Jesus. Okay, so the question, Matt, how does a Protestant pastor and teacher, how does any Protestant, who has always viewed the Lord's Supper as a simple, symbolic meal of remembrance, how does he respond to the challenge of Christian history? I mean, does the voice of history matter is the question. And I would have to say most of my evangelical friends would say, no, it doesn't matter. I mean, all that matters is what the New Testament says or what I perceive the New Testament to be saying, sola scriptura. And the fact that no one seems to have held this um, evangelical Protestant view of the Eucharist, that is the Lord's Supper, simple meal of remembrance, proclamation, the fact that no one seems to have held this view of the Lord's Supper really until Zwingli in the early 16th century, doesn't seem to rattle them enough to even make them curious. I wasn't able to respond like this. I just wasn't able to, and really for several reasons that I want to walk through just quickly. First is this. I had spent years and years, Matt, in the serious, I would say academic, I would even say scholarly study of the New Testament writings. I had preached through a number of New Testament books, verse by verse, working directly from the Greek text week by week. I knew enough 
about the New Testament to know that the New Testament, first of all, isn't a manual of Christian doctrine. It's just not a manual of Christian doctrine. That's not what it was written for, and that's not how that's not what we find it to be. And I also knew enough about the content of the New Testament to kind of know in advance that I wasn't going to find some passage in the New Testament that I could point to and say, oh, here it is, proof that the early church's view of the Eucharist is flat out unbiblical, proof that the Catholics have been wrong all along, and the Eastern Orthodox, the entire church, up until the time, really, of the Reformation again. Second was this. It seemed reasonable to me, just on basic common sense level, it seemed reasonable to think that even as the teaching of the apostles would be reflected in their writings, what they wrote, so also would their, their teaching be reflected in the faith and the practice of the churches they founded. And I want to pause sure. you there because this is the thing that, this is the two and two that I did not put together. Like if the apostles are teaching a certain thing and we don't have to worry about the apostles, uh, we don't have to worry about the early church, we just have to worry about what the apostles wrote down. Well, by thinking that, we were coming to the automatic conclusion that nobody's paying attention to what the apostles are saying. Yeah, yeah. Right? That, that basically, because that, that's what you're presuming. You're presuming that the apostles taught this stuff, but nobody paid attention. Yeah, and therefore... Like, none of the churches they founded were going along with what the apostles actually told them. And therefore, you can focus your energy 100% on the text in the New Testament and basically just wave off the faith and practice of the early church, even when it yeah, seems universal, if, even when it seems unanimous. Go ahead. Yeah, what if like a few of those churches actually listened? Yeah, there, there is a possibility. You know, what if they actually did what the apostles yeah. told them to do? I mean, would that matter? Well, see, okay, it seemed reasonable to me to think in that way, to think that just as their teaching would be reflected in what they wrote, yes, indeed, it would also be reflected in the churches they founded. And John Henry Newman put it like this, till positive reasons are grounded uh, well, excuse me, till positive reasons grounded on facts are adduced to the contrary, the most natural hypothesis, again, common sense, the most natural hypothesis is to consider that the society of Christians which the apostles left on earth were of that religion <laughs> to which the apostles converted them. This is this is really difficult stuff right now. Uh, I mean, he's using kind of like flowery language, but it's a very common sense kind of thing. He says, it's the most natural hypothesis then is to consider that the society of Christians, which the apostles left on earth, were of that religion to which the apostles converted them. That as Christianity began by manifesting itself as of a certain shape and bearing to all mankind, therefore that it went on so to manifest itself. It is not a violent, it is not a violent assumption then to take it for granted before proof to the contrary that the Christianity of the 2nd, 4th, 7th, 12th, 16th, and intermediate centuries is in its substance the very religion which Christ and his apostles taught in the first place. I, I remember reading this and asking myself, would not the faith and practice of the early church be a good indicator? I mean, generally speaking, wouldn't it be a good indicator of what the apostles had taught? what the apostles had actually told them, especially in a case where you find the church's belief and practice to be virtually unanimous and spread throughout the Roman Empire, as we see with the doctrine of the Eucharist. It, it, it seemed eminently reasonable to me to think this, and at the same time, it did not seem reasonable to me to think that the apostles would teach one thing 
about the Eucharist, and then that the entire church would, tur- would turn around and teach another thing about the Eucharist, and without there being any historical evidence of a change, or evidence of a struggle, evidence have, of a debate. Right, and we do have evidence of debate on a lot of questions. Yes. Um, like, for instance, circumcision, which we've spent umpteen weeks <laughs> talking about in our Sola Fide discussion. One of discussion. our favorite we have, de- we have strong evidence of the kinds of things that they did debate over. So why wasn't the Eucharist one of those yeah, things? Yeah, you know, and the Gnostics, the Docetists, all, you know, on and on and on. We know about yeah. all kinds of discussions. So why is it when it comes to the Eucharist, if the church departed from what the apostles had taught, why is there no evidence of a debate? Finally, it struck me, this, is, this struck me, Matt. Finally, it was that what seemed reasonable to me, the things we're discussing here, clearly also seemed reasonable to the early church fathers. St. Irenaeus describes the apostles as having deposited their teaching into the church like a rich man deposits his money in the bank. And because of this, he says, Christians can come to the church to draw out from the church, as from a bank, all that the apostles taught. Quoting Irenaeus, As I said before, the church, having received this preaching and this faith from the apostles, although she is disseminated throughout the whole world, yet guarded it, that is, this teaching, as if she occupied but one house. She likewise believes these things as if she had but one soul and one in the same heart, and harmoniously she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down as if she possessed but one mouth. Clearly, Irenaeus didn't think, oh, the teachings is all over the map. Who really knows what the apostles taught? Who knows the truth on these matters? Not at all. Yeah, and and against heresies, which he's writing in the late second century, mm-hmm. he's referring in this whole group of things that the, 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 the apostles deposited in the bank, he's including the idea of Scripture itself in that mix. I mean, the canon of Scripture is not even established, but right. here St. Irenaeus is quoting from Scripture probably more than any church father right. Right. because he trusts it because the apostles are connected with it and have deposited even the truths of the Scriptures to the church to safeguard and eventually place into the New Testament Yeah, canon. you're dead on. The first great biblical theologian is St. Irenaeus, and yet he's the one who says the teaching of the apostles was deposited in the church, and you can go there. Okay, my point here. With all of this in mind, reflecting on Newman, reflecting on the value of history and whatnot, I simply did not feel that I could easily dismiss the historical witness of the church as though it shouldn't carry any weight in my thinking. You know, um, I, I couldn't wave off 1,500 years of Christian witness and just say, hey, none of this matters. Scripture alone is inspired. All that matters is what I think the New Testament to be teaching. And at the same time, of course, I was eager to re-examine the New Testament passages that touched on the Lord's Supper. Questions is flying through my mind, you know, was there anything in the New Testament that might support the early church's view of the Eucharist? Was there anything in the New Testament that might prove their view to be unbiblical? You know, prove the case that, yeah, the church just simply departed from the New Testament and was teaching, uh, had an unbiblical view of the Eucharist almost immediately and universally, which they held for 1,500 years. So I wanted to look. And the place to begin, you and I are going to spend some weeks now, and we're going to crawl through a lot of themes in some detail, but 
the place where I wanted to start, start Matt, what was sort of the obvious was, I just wanted to get me over to 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11, where we find the most sustained discussion of the Lord's Supper anywhere in the New Testament letters. I wanted to just go there, and I wanted to read what St. Paul had to say in the light now of what I'd seen in the early church. And that's what we're going to kind of walk through just briefly today, okay? Yeah, and to, for context, uh, very often, uh, pro- most pro- Protestants and Catholics, when they have a commemoration of the Lord's Supper, what they're quoting for most often is this passage from St. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. They, you know, often, yeah. uh, I mean, even in my churches, uh, the Protestant churches I attended growing up, we would quote from St. Paul word for word when we would have our commemoration of the Lord's Supper. Well, in fact, that's where we're going to start. Yes, chapters 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians, as I said, is the most sustained discussion anywhere in the New Testament letters. And that's where we'll begin, is where you, what you just mentioned. Okay, first of all, it was clear to me that for St. Paul, the Lord's Supper was a meal of remembrance and a meal of proclamation of the death of Christ. Paul states this clearly in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 23 through 26, which is, I'm sure, the passage that you were just referring to. But Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and drink this, I mean, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so not much to comment here. So far, so good. As a Baptist, what I believed so far, true, you know, but of course this doesn't get us very much because the fact is that every single Christian body on earth believes this much about the Lord's Supper, that it is a meal of remembrance and a meal in which we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Yeah, just uh, to, for context, even the Jehovah's Witnesses who have only one liturgical celebration a year believe this, this is the, this is the one, right? They believe that yeah. they should remember uh, yeah. because Jesus said, "Do this in remembrance of me." So, so that this passage is in chapter eleven of First Corinthians, and it's the most standard passage, that, as you said, that we would read at every celebration of the Lord's Supper. So I began there, but then I backed up to the beginning of chapter ten, and I began to read carefully. And I immediately ran into something weird, okay, something a little bit strange to my, to the point of view that I had and that I had learned. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, Paul uses Old Covenant Israel's experience in the wilderness as a warning of what will happen to his New Covenant readers in Corinth if they allow themselves to fall into sin and fail to persevere in the faith. Listen to what he says. We usually read this passage with the idea of the warning in mind, that that being the focus. But listen to what he says. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same supernatural food and all drank the same supernatural drink. For they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things are warnings for us. Okay, I was familiar with the passage, as you are, and I was I was very familiar with the basic facts that St. Paul relates here. These are the facts. 
even though the Israelites had been baptized into Moses, even though they had been given supernatural food and supernatural drink to sustain them on their journey through the wilderness to the land of promise, the manna from heaven, that is, the water from the rock, many of them never made it to the promised land. Okay, those are the facts. Yes. And, and Ken, just to, for context, in, in my own way that I sort of understood this, uh, in my own tradition was that these are examples, everything, this was sort of emblematic of everything that we see in the Old Testament, that the mm -hmm. people of the Old Testament, they lived under an old set of rules. They messed up in old ways. We have Christ. We're not, no, we're no longer bound by the law in the way that they were bound by the law. See these people. The reason we have their stories is so we kind of have this general example of what not to do and how God uh, doesn't deal with us anymore. What I never saw is what you're about to point out. You mean the positive parallel? <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. Okay, because yeah, I was familiar with these basic facts. This is what the passage says, okay? Even though the Israelites had been baptized, even though they had been given supernatural food, they fell dead in the wilderness, watch out, okay? What I had not thought so much about was, was the question of what exactly is Paul saying to his readers by relating these facts, okay? And it struck me at this point that what Paul appears to be saying is something like this, that is to the Corinthians. He appears to be saying, brothers and sisters, you may have been baptized into Christ as they were baptized into Moses. And here's the thing. Here's the, here's the, the brick in the face, kind of. You may have been baptized into Christ as they were. You may have your own supernatural food and drink as they had theirs. Referring to what? What would he be referring to? The Eucharist. But none of this guarantees that you will make it to the end of your journey if you fail to persevere in the obedience of faith. What I had never noticed before is that in this passage, Paul is drawing a direct parallel between the Lord's Supper and the miraculous food and drink with which God fed the Israelites on their journey through the wilderness to the promised land. In other words, Paul is implicitly referring to the Lord's Supper as supernatural food and drink. Or let, let, me, let me paint this in another way, or let me say this in another way. In other words, when the Apostle Paul thought about the Lord's Supper, because this is what this entire passage is about, chapters 10 and 11, is basically about the Lord's Supper. When the Apostle Paul thought about the Lord's Supper, he definitely thought about remembering, do this in remembrance of me, he definitely thought about proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, but he also thought about supernatural food, supernatural drink given to sustain God's people on their journey through the wilderness of this life. The images, in other words, that came to Paul's mind when he thought about the Lord's Supper were images of water springing up from rocks, images of manna floating down from heaven and being gathered every morning. It was images of supernatural food. I had never made this connection before. And you wouldn't make that connection, and I didn't make that connection, if you were to just pick up a Bible by yourself with no experience of any kind of church history, and you're just to grab it and read it. Yeah. You, and wouldn't, you wouldn't pick up on that. But if you were someone who had been raised in the church in a mm -hmm. generation or mm -hmm. two after the apostles, this is the only way you would ever think of this passage. Yeah, it, you know, because you would have had the context of how the early church lived this passage. It also has to do with the lens through which you read it, I guess, because reading these passages through the lens of 
I already know what the Lord's Supper is. It's a simple symbolic meal of remembrance. It's nothing more than that. I just didn't see that Paul was drawing this connection between the Lord's Supper and the manna. Even though he does, uh, even though he talks as explicitly as one could possibly talk about the Lord's Supper, just a handful of verses later. Yeah, in fact, that's the next one we're going to. I, I, I moved on then from verses 1 through 6 of chapter 10 to verses 16 and 17 of that same chapter, where Paul says that when we receive the bread and the cup, we share in, we participate in, we share in, we participate in the body and blood of Christ. This is what he says. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there was one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, when I read this passage as a basically a modern evangelical Baptist in my theology, it seemed obvious to me that Paul was speaking figuratively. It, it, it just seemed patently obvious to me that all Paul was saying here was that when we share in the Lord's Supper, we are expressing symbolically our share in the body and blood of Christ. But now, having immersed myself in the mindset of the early church, and then looking at this again, the thought occurred to me, how do I know Paul's speaking figuratively? How do I know that? What if Paul is saying here, just sort of in a just in a straight, you know, way. What if he's saying here that when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are literally, we are really sharing in the body and blood of Christ? I looked at the Greek word here, translated participation. It's the simple Greek word koinonia, which means to share, to participate in, um, to fellowship in. It simply means that. And so, the question now was, how do I know that Paul isn't saying exactly what the early church said, that in the Eucharist we share in the body and blood of Christ? I wanted to jump in here because there's a, there's this part of that passage in, in verse 17 that always kind of mystified me, and I never knew what to make of it, that when St. Paul talks about you know one Lord, mm -hmm. one faith, one baptism, and then he goes in here and says the one loaf, like... What does it mean, like the one loaf or the one, you know, it says the one bread in the translation you're using here. Uh, you know, I've, I've been in uh, places where the interpretation of that was, was that uh, what we needed to do at communion is have a baguette, right? Mm -hmm. So that how, however we distribute communion, it means that we've got to have it all come off of one loaf of bread, right? Uh, like that was the kind of interpretation of it. But if you're looking at it as a participation in the body of Christ, that mm -hmm, this actually mm -hmm. becomes the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, then even if you're in Tanzania or North Korea or wherever it is you happen to be, if you're receiving communion, you're receiving the one loaf because it is a mystical participation in the real presence of Jesus Christ. Again, this is the kind of stuff that just, I didn't know I didn't really know what to do with. It, but now you see that I didn't it, have that Eucharistic theology. And now you see yeah. that you know. Wow, I wouldn't be able to prove this, but it fits. It totally you fits. Know. Okay, I read on, and immediately I found Paul talking about altars in in First Corinthians chapter ten, talking about altars, talking about sacrifices, and contrasting the Lord's Supper with the Old Testament sacrificial offerings and those that are offered on pagan altars. This is what he says. Consider the people of Israel. 
Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. He's going into a lot of details that we're not even going to think about right now. The important point is simply to see this. He's talking about the Lord's Supper in sacrificial terms. He's contrasting it with other sacrifices on altars. Paul says, I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and then partake of the table of demons. Now, as we saw last week, it was a part of the early church's faith and teaching to view the Eucharist as a sacrificial meal that was celebrated on an altar. Remember, we read from J.N.D. Kelly, the great early church historian, where he wrote, and I quote, the Eucharist was regarded as the distinctively Christian sacrifice from the closing decade of the first century, if not earlier. And all he means by that is the earliest document that he can find and read, which would be maybe the closing decade of the first century, the earliest post-apostolic document, is already describing the Eucharist in sacrificial terms. Going on, J.N.D. Kelly, Malachi's prediction that the Lord would reject the Jewish sacrifices and instead would have a pure offering made to him by the Gentiles in every place was seized upon by Christians as a prophecy of the Eucharist. So this is something we're going to come back to, that we're going to talk next week about the Eucharist as the New Covenant Passover. So we're going to be coming back to the sacrificial themes. My point here is simply to say one thing, really. As a Baptist, I did not think of the Lord's Supper in sacrificial terms at all. It was a meal of remembrance celebrated on a table. And here's Paul in a passage that is all about the Lord's Supper through chapters 10 and 11, off and on, very naturally talking about altars, talking about offerings, talking about the sacrifices of the Old Covenant Israelites, the sacrifices that pagans make on altars and receive, that is, eat from pagan altars. Paul clearly thought of the Eucharist in sacrificial terms. That's the point. Yeah, and as you were saying, um, you know, I, I had to laugh when you were saying that you know the earliest post-apostolic documents refer to the Eucharist as a sacrifice. We have actually earlier stuff than that that refers to the Eucharist as a sacrifice. It's called the New Testament. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Uh, but but if you don't know what you're looking at, you'll miss it. It's like. Have you ever been in a room with somebody and they're talking about baseball for like two minutes, but it takes you a second to figure out that that baseball is what they're talking about because baseball is the kind of thing that has so much inside language and terminology and, yeah. uh, you know, sort of a uh, story about it that if you're mm-hmm. not paying attention, you may not realize, oh, oh, obviously they're talking about baseball. So everything they said for the last three minutes suddenly makes sense. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. this, is, this is the way that the, the early church talks about the Eucharist. Uh, you know, in breaking of bread and, and so many other terms that once you start to see it, you start to see it everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, as I said, we'll be coming back to seeing more of this in the New Testament. I was just reiterating that J.N.D. Kelly says from the earliest documents he can find, and he's working as a historian, meaning post-apostolic, it's there. Explicitly. There. So then, okay, so then I go on reading a bit and I am reading through chapter 11, the, the classic passage that we're all very familiar with, where St. Paul says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body 
without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we are judged, but if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. Okay, to receive unworthily, Paul says, is to profane not symbols of the body and blood, but it is to, to profane the body and blood of the Lord. When we receive unworthily, we drink judgment on ourselves, Paul says here. Some have become weak, some have become ill, some have even died. Now, it's possible, of course, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be the level-headed scientific ex New Testament exegete. It's possible that all Paul means here is that when we receive the symbols of Christ's body and blood unworthily, these things follow. We're profaning Christ, our Savior, and His and the sacrifice that He offered of Himself for us. But but here's the thing: maybe not, Matt. <laughs> maybe He's not simply saying here that when we receive the symbols, maybe the reason He's speaking, in fact, in such I don't know profoundly kind of powerful terms, you're going to get sick, you're going to die is because he views the Eucharist as something much more than a simple, symbolic meal of remembrance. Yeah, I, yeah. I want to go back to this sure. just for a brief moment. Um, you know, I don't know how, how you would have dealt with that question of what does it mean to be guilty of the body and blood of Christ if you receive unworthily. Um, there are a few different ways that I remember kind of trying to understand that in, in the places where I received communion mm -hmm. as a Nazarene, as a free Methodist, or, or those are the clearest memories to me. And it would be, if you're not uh, receiving them, having examined your conscience and confessed mm -hmm. your sins, uh, th then then you are, you know, committing a form of blasphemy. Yeah. But I, I, not blasphemy against the elements themselves. You know, there was never that indication. And I actually, I think I hear, remember a theology professor saying something like, well, eat and drink without discerning the body. Well, he just talked about, you know, people pigging out at the Eucharist. And what he really means is not discerning the body of Christ around you, who's lining mm -hmm. up to mm -hmm. receive, like you're, what you're guilty of is being rude to the people around you. And I knew it couldn't be that. I knew that what's going on here is a lot more than just, you know, taken too much at the buffet with people in line behind you. I knew it had to be more than that, but I didn't have any context for understanding what it meant to profane the body and blood of Christ based on mm -hmm. my personal experience of celebrations of the Lord's Supper. Well, let me, let me try to tie this together. I remember going down to the local mall in Riverside, California, when I was 18, 19 years old, and seeing for the first time one of those images. You remember those pixelated images? It was a picture Oh, the three. Yeah, and things? when you looked at it, you saw a dinosaur or something. You know, you saw a rabbit. Maybe you did. I saw okay. nothing. You saw a rabbit, and, and the thing is, once you saw a rabbit, you could only see a rabbit, and yet someone's telling you, "No, no, no, no. Look at it from a slightly different angle. Keep staring, and you'll see that it's not a rabbit; it's a duck." And you stare, and you shift your eyes around, and you look at it, and all of a sudden, a duck you know, arises from the picture. And then once you see a duck, you can't see a rabbit anymore. Okay. You're, but you're familiar with that idea, those kinds of... Oh yeah. They got the same thing with like an old lady and young lady. If you flip the picture up. Yeah. Right and now. I saw one just the other day that someone had shared um, somewhere where it, it, there were a bunch of plastic bowls of various sizes and they all look like they're upside down. But then as soon as you squint, you realize they're not upside down. They're right side up, all, all of them. Okay. Oh yeah, or like there's a candlestick where it looks like there's two faces facing each yeah. other, or it's a candlestick, depending on which one. Okay, you, you know see. the idea oh, yeah. then. All right. Well, this applies in this way as I try to sum this up. 
I had read 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 for years through the lens of my theology, that is, through the lens of modern evangelical teaching. And all I saw in the passage was, do this in memory of, in remembrance of me. That's really all there was. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a symbolic meal using bread and wine. That's it. Now I was reading these chapters with a different lens, through the lens of the faith and teaching of the early church fathers. Now I was reading them in the light of the faith and teaching of the church in the first centuries of its existence, and really all the way up till the time of Zwingli again, with some minor um, transgressions along the way. And suddenly, I'm seeing something different. Before I saw a rabbit, now I'm seeing a duck, you know, or the other way around. Suddenly, this is what I see. Suddenly, I see Paul comparing the Eucharist to the supernatural food and drink that the Israelites were given to nourish them on the road through the desert. Suddenly, I'm hearing Paul saying that when we receive the bread and the cup, we are sharing in the body and blood of Christ. Suddenly, I see Paul contrasting the Eucharist with the Old Testament sacrifices and the sacrifices offered by pagans and eaten from pagan altars. Suddenly, I hear Paul warning that to receive the Lord's Supper unworthily is to profane the body and blood of Christ and to risk judgment on oneself. And I want to be just perfectly honest here with you and with those who are watching. I wasn't close to saying at this point that the teaching of the early church had somehow been demonstrated by this or was somehow proven to be true. I wasn't even close to that. At the same time, I had to admit that the teaching of the early church was entirely consistent with the things that Paul was saying in these passages. There was certainly nothing here to contradict the teaching of the early church. And to be honest, there was much there that I thought kind of supported the teaching of the early church. And from here then, the, this small beginning, I knew that I was going to need to really take a more serious look at the entire biblical evidence for the Catholic teaching. And whatever arguments Catholic apologists and historians and biblical scholars could make. And so I just began moving forward, and that's where I guess we're going to move again next week. Yeah, I, I remember a very similar experience because, you know, here I was a guy who had done a whole semester of Bible quizzing on First and Second Corinthians, mm -hmm. for example, as a teenager. And, you know, the, all these pieces around um, that thing of the Lord's Supper that you just read from First Corinthians 10 and 11, we just assume that that's sort of like, uh, it's like the stuff on the warning labels. You're like... You don't have to worry about most of this stuff. What you need to know is just don't drop the toaster in the yeah. bathtub. Don't even worry about this other stuff. That's just sort of like mm -hmm. extra language. And now I started to realize, wait, maybe there's a way that this stuff was actually concretely treated by the early Christians. Maybe maybe they didn't just like read this whole thing and say, well, what really matters is that you, know, you do this mm -hmm. in remembrance. Maybe they took everything in that passage from Paul and had a place for it in the context of Christian worship. And that sort of scared yeah, me. Yeah, they had a place for it because, because Paul had taught them when he was with them exactly what the Eucharist means and how to do it and all. He had taught them, and therefore all these little that reading on the page might seem to us just like a little hint here and a little hint there that you can't really prove anything from or you need to kind of, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and it, it, like I say, it scared me a little bit um, because I thought, well, have I been flippant mm -hmm. about the scriptures? I just 
thinking that this stuff wasn't important, that what was important was all the what must I do to be saved stuff. And and do I even have that stuff right now mm-hmm. based on mm-hmm. what I'm finding? So yeah, it was a, it's a jarring experience. And um, I'm sure that there's some people watching right now who are possibly going through that sort of jarring process. And maybe you have your own questions and maybe what we've said isn't satisfying. That's okay. Don't worry. We have more to talk about in this particular series on the Eucharist specifically well, in one, the New Testament. Yeah, I have um, one, the, but I have one go, more little word of encouragement that comes to me, that w- what this taught me is the importance, of, the importance of understanding that we all look at Scripture through the eyeglasses of the worldview that we have been trained in and taught, if you will, our, our tradition, our theological tradition. And therefore, I, I, I guess I would just urge our Protestant viewers and listeners, you know, I, I just urge you, that if you really want to see whether there's something to be said for Catholicism, you have to be willing to put on Catholic glasses, put on the Catholic lenses, and really try to see things in a new way. Um, because as long as I was just looking at everything through my Protestant lenses, that's all I saw was Protestantism. You know, it took some work, you know, stepping into the early fathers, really absorbing the mindset of the early fathers, and then being willing to try try on a new set of glasses, like oh, you know, like okay, I'll, I'll go back to the Bible, and I'll put on these other glasses, and I'll see what I can see. And so, it, just to encourage my, I, I want to put you have to be willing to step into a worldview and really walk around and see it from the inside to begin to perceive its value. Like I say, when I when I did that exercise, I was I kind of like. Rip the glasses off and threw them in the corner the first few times because <laughs> I didn't like what I was finding. Uh, but uh, as as I continued to do it, I thought, oh, suddenly I have a place for mm-hmm. these verses in my theology. All these verses that I had like just didn't have any place right. to put them, like didn't have anything to do with them. That they were just sort of junk verses in my mind. I hate to be that flippant, but that's kind of what they were. So, especially in regard to this particular conversation, yeah. If, if this is something that you've got questions or comments on, we would love to hear from you. Please do uh, let us know what you're thinking by uh, either weighing in the comments uh, here on uh, our YouTube video, head on over to chnetwork.org. Maybe check us out in our online community. Uh, Go to chnetwork.org and click on um, the link to our community, and we would love to hear from you. Uh, In the meantime, I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. Thanks so much. See you later, Matt. Have a great week, sir. Bye-bye.